Good morning and welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do on officehours.global. Our first hours is always a general discussion of production and IT related topics where we answer audience submitted questions. Um, our second hour, typically a deeper dive into a topic. And uh, today our topic is going to be election graphics review. So we'll be kind of breaking down and talking about what the major networks and the other alternate sources have done in terms of putting the graphics packages around the election process we've just gone through in the US. So that's what's on tap for today. Um, everybody, nice to have you here. And let's dive into the questions. Jason, what do we got? Actually, I don't think I'm going to be reader. I thought it was oh, going to be I'm sorry. Mitch. Am I wrong Mitch. about that? No, go ahead. Mitch. Jason, go for it. It's a good time for you. Well, no, let's not confuse the back end folks too much. All right, sorry. Uh, first question is in from Todd Rains in Allen, Texas. Has anyone tried the Roland Web Presentation Doc, the UVC02? It's on sale at B&H, and there's a, a link to it. And I think it's like, what, it's about $100, something like that. I haven't even heard of it, but if it's, uh, if it's, uh, Roland has been around the industry for a long time. They come out of the music business. They make a lot of good stuff. I have never used this particular piece. And actually, I don't think I've ever used much Roland gear, but that doesn't say anything about it. Nobody else is raising their hand on it. So this must be one of those circumstances where uh, the panel just doesn't have a lot of uh, information on this particular product. Uh, B&H does go through and, and they tend to sell things that work and they certainly do stand behind things. So that gives me a little bit of confidence. Oh, Mitch has a thought. Mitch? Yeah, Roland has been making, uh, you know, front end stuff like that for quite some time, longer than uh, Blackmagic for that matter. And they have a huge number of uh, products in that product line, uh, some even with the T-bar on them. So I like them. I know that uh, one of the people on our uh, group here, Javier, has uh, been uh, spending quite a bit of time with the, uh, was it not the Roland that you had be before this, Javier? Uh, no, I'm actually using the uh, Behringer, but uh, actually my thoughts on that would be uh, pretty, uh, what I was going to say is that it's cool that they're this kind of products that I haven't used, but look like very simple. Sometimes when we use it or we see it as quote unquote professionals, you see it and it's like, it's missing this or it's uh, lacking this other thing. But uh, as people start doing like conferences for everything and working on Zoom, and I think all these like user uh, uh, interfaces and cameras that may maybe look simple for people that know better, but for someone that's just getting into it, uh, it's gonna up the level of their audio. It has like a big talk button or mute button. and. It's very simple to use, and I think that um, I, I, it may work for a lot of people. Maybe it's not like the professional tool, but Roland has uh, a great track record for doing like great things that at Nora, like they're not at the top of the level, but they are good things for the price. Absolutely. Chris Fenwick. I think it's important to remember that they decided they couldn't sell it for $330, so now they're going to try and sell it for $200. That has to tell you something about something that's radically on sale. Also, very interesting, it has an HDMI in on an audio switching device. So they're they're just sucking the audio off the HDMI, and it's one of the inputs that you could mix in. I thought that was kind of interesting. But yeah, it's a hundred. It's a $330 device that they couldn't sell. So hmm. buyer beware. Okay, fair enough. Let's head on to the next question. Douglas Carmichael's and Elgato has released Stream Deck Plus with knobs. How about that? What production use cases could you see for said knobs, and does Companion support them yet? 
That looked pretty interesting. I hadn't known that they came out with that. I just saw it. Tom Ferguson's got to start us off here. Well, I've got a question for Chris Fenwick, and that is, would he give up his MIDI controller if this uh, would substitute for that? Hmm. Uh, the back end's expecting Mitchell Hill next, so let's do, go to Mitch, and then we'll uh, get Chris's response to that. All right, sounds good. And uh, just to, what's interesting about it is that I like the idea of knobs because there's a lot of things that need that kind of a variable input rather than just a binary on-off switch. Uh, color uh, correcting would be one of them. Audio, audio levels. Those are uh, two applications I can think of that would be nice. Don't know anything about the companion support because I don't have one. And Chris Fenwick, your response to Tom Ferguson's allegation. It's an interesting question, Tom. Uh, clearly, I don't know. I didn't know this thing existed until like the countdown to the start of the show. Um, but it, it, you were right. It does have a the the little visual screen on it. Here, I could show this. Uh, here we go. So, so here's the little visual screen on it. Uh, not only is this feedback, but it's also this is buttons. And then here's your knobs down here, of course. Um, I mean, it's oh, a four. So it is a little mini touch screen. It is a little touch screen. Yeah. There you uh, go. That, that would make the knobs very versatile. Uh, yeah. And, and the device very confusing. Uh, I, I, I don't know. The, you got to remember, yes, it's a thing, but now you, now you need all the software support. Also, my MIDI controller doesn't talk to my computer. My MIDI controller, and I have, for the record, I have the Korg uh, Nano Controller 2. Uh, my MIDI controller talks to my Mix Pre directly. There's no, there's no software on the computer to talk to it. So this introduces the, um, the power of the computer, but also the complexity of the computer. So I would say specifically to your question, Tom, no, uh, the MIDI controller works really good, but the Mix Pre. Uh, but this is, a, this is a solution for a problem I don't have, so I'll have to look into this. It's interesting. You know, the knobs, it's a different form factor. Elegato obviously has had amazing success with stream decks. I know very few of my streaming friends who don't have one or more in their workflows somewhere. So it's interesting that they decided that a more analog-like control and that they kind of sort of resurrected the Apple Touch Bar idea a little bit and put it on an audio interface, that kind of surprises me. I don't know whether it's modal like that and you can suddenly turn it into a volume control and slide your finger if you like that more than the, the rotary pots. But overall, it's just a fascinating thing. And I think it's something that we'll be uh, diving more deeply into as people get used to it. Chris, you had another thought? I have another request, Bill. Mm -hmm. I, I know that you now live in Southern California. I you do. live very, very close to the border. <clears throat> yes, I do. Three syllables in el gato el gato you, you, instead of there you, you you always slip an extra little e or something oh, el gato yeah you're right i do i, I always you do it all the time elegant. and i've el and gato. i've had it i want you okay. to fix it this is a show about talking all we right. talk and i think that we should talk properly I am Gato. I am corrected hey, and thank nice. you for that. I will probably never think of see this word in the rest of my life without thinking of the last two minutes. We should at <laughs> least talk properly. You're, you're That's what we do on right. the show. I am chagrined and corrected, which is the most important thing. Thank you. Let's oh Peter Sargent has a note. 
Well, the other to answer the other half of the question, Companion does not support it. Remember, this was just released within the last 24 hours. However, the feature request has been put into the GitHub project. The feature request for something, some uh, modification? For, compa for Companion to support this Elgato ah. Streamback Plus. Ah, yeah. You'd have to think the protocol of what's coming out. That, that A lot of, yeah, they've done some new research. There has to be some new chip intelligence in there taking and, care of this. And for right? those of you who don't know, there's both a beta and an alpha version of Companion. And so the alpha version is where this will hit first. Interesting. Oh, and Alex is here. Alex, how are you? Good morning. I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Uh, I only have one question. Is it shipping? <laughs> is it shipping? <laughs> like, like, oh my gosh, that looks great. Yes, it is. Sure is. Okay, Alex, you've lost some money this morning. Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, next question. From Paul Valhus in Austin, Texas. Uh, Paul asks, if a panelist or producer wants to do a show and use Mukana or Mukana Lite, just making that up, for questions in chat, what would be the process for making that happen? And Paul, you are in luck because Alex Lindsay just popped in. Who knows everything about that, Alex? These guys ping me on Discord and talk to me about it. It depends on what, what you're doing with it. But uh, we are definitely expanding the use of it pretty uh, rapidly. Excellent. Mitchell, you have a thought? I was going to say, wait for Compenda or uh, Commenda or what? What name is that, Alex? Commenda. Commenda. Just, just remember, wait for Commenda to come along. It's shown up for comments, so Commenda is not very. It's not much of a jump yet. And speaking of that, Alex, since you weren't here at the beginning, do you want to slip into the host role, or do you want to continue to be a guest or? I, I'm not, now that I've now that you're run run with it, I'm just going to sit here and be a panelist. Okay, fair enough. Let's go on to the next question, which is my primary job. <laughs> All right, uh, Douglas Carmichael asks: uh, Anyone uh, use the remote review over SRT feature in Avid Media Composer? How well does it work? And they have a link there for it. And we don't have anybody. Oh, Alex just popped in. Alex, go ahead. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. Avid's got a bunch of remote stuff that, that they've been building up and accelerated a little bit during COVID. I haven't actually used this specifically, but um, there are quite a few tools that they're, they've kind of built out and are continuing to build out. So it's definitely a thing to to keep your eye out for. Hey, by the way, your background is awesome there. I don't Where are you Thanks. today? I am at home. I, this you're is at the, home. Oh, you're getting there. The Next. new studio, yeah. Nice. <laughs> so this is uh, still. You'll notice that the mic is different because all the. I thought, well, I, do I do I really need all the blankets up here? And it turns out, yes, I do because it's. Uh, if I turn, if I put the old mic back in, it's, it's very live. So. Uh, so you're on an anyway, SM58. Yeah, and I have. By the way, is is you know, Courtney's not here? I have, see right over my shoulder there. That's, yeah, do you use that oscilloscope a lot? Yeah, exactly, Courtney. That's Courtney's. <laughs> Courtney, I was down in LA, really? and he's like, "I got a, I got an oscilloscope for you." <laughs> so That's there awesome. It is yeah, I thought it was good. In ensuing weeks, I want to know what's in all the parts bins back there. But from oh, right now, you don't, you don't like. So that's the whole thing. You're going to constantly see this kind of constantly changing and playing around because the. Um, yeah, the, that's got to change. You can see that the sun is coming through. It'll move across a little bit. I got to fix that, and then um, the parts bins will go away. And put more. I'll put more. Is that a sandwich behind you on the shelf? There's no sandwich behind me, but it sounds like a really great idea. I might go get one you know, in the future. Maybe I will say the picture overall there. looks stunning. It really looks Thanks. nice. So great job. Thanks. All right, let's get back to the show here. Momentary confusion. And next question. Next one in from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. Has an Elgato rep ever been on office hours? Uh, Jason's going to help us. I've been here since day one, but of course I haven't been to absolutely every session. Um, to my knowledge, no. Alex? 
course, we have David Paskin, who is is, is very close to being one, just given how much he knows. Uh, so, uh, so we've we've definitely had our second hours uh, with uh, with David uh, showing stuff, you know, sharing what he knows about. Uh, uh, oh, no, it's not Elgato. I was thinking of Ecamm. No, I don't know. No, we haven't had it. And here's and here's why. <laughs> I'm sorry, I resorted it. Is because the last time I asked them to come on, they said we weren't big enough. <laughs> like like that was that was Ouch. the response. Yeah, this was a little while ago, but still. Then I was like, mm. <laughs> so, so that's that's why they haven't been on. Like so so it was literally I got I got just shut down by the by their rep, and so um we probably won't be coming back. They'll have to come to us. There you go. Uh, that's, that's kind of the rule, by the way. If, if you're watching, if, if I if I invite you to office hours and you say that we're not we're not really what you're looking for, then it's all on you after that. <laughs> like I'm never coming back. So anyway, go ahead. Uh, let's move on to the next question. Now, we really like reading questions here. I know I uh, enjoy it. Um, we could use some more. If you have a question you'd like to submit to this great panel, uh, please put it in. Uh, otherwise, we will spend some time with these for our first hour. Here's a question in from Joe Phillips in Murphy, North Carolina. Using an ATEM SDI Extreme ISO to capture classroom training for post-processing, and you have three extra ISO inputs. Is there a way to capture audio only from a mixer to these channels for additional sources without breaking the bank? And I don't use the Extreme ISO. I have one of the original ATEMs, so I don't have any audio inputs for that. Mitch, you want to help us out with what's on the back patches? I, I would think that you would be able to uh, get a mix pre in there somewhere and send that audio directly into it, but I don't like using those unbalanced inputs on the extreme. Alex? Yeah, I think you'd be better off finding some kind of uh, solution that in, that was just a sec separate recorder that you would sync back to this. I think the amount of work that you would do to use those extra ones just to keep them in sync, syncing audio once you get good at it takes almost no time. Like it just, it, it's just like you, 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 um, you mark a place that that's there. You, you mark it on the new one, you slide it over, you listen for it echoing a little bit or phasing a little bit and you move it back and, and you, it takes, I mean, like if you had a raw recording from, let's say a mix pre or even a zoom or, or anything that, you know, there's lots of things that'll capture six channels or eight channels of audio. Um, and so, and so you could be capturing that on a relatively inexpensive recorder, Lining that back up with the original one should not take you more than three to five minutes at most, you know, to to put those back in. And so that's what I'd recommend rather than a whole bunch of extra things just to get audio in there. And Chris Fenwick. I would like to give you that three to five minutes back and say, go get any device that has analog audio input and a HDMI output and just like an old camcorder or something. Plug the audio into that. Now you're going to get it actually in sync. And yes, you're right, Alex. It's very easy to sync audio if you've done it like a few thousand well, times. And, and it's really good. Here's what I would say is it's also a really good skill to have. So it's it worth a, it's worth the practice. Like it's, it's a good, worth, it's if a you're good doing skill to have. Like, you know, like it just, and, and, and again, I think you're going to have all these He'll just, I, I still think that's kind of a janky pipeline. <laughs> my pipe, my pipeline of going through an old like camcorder. old camcorders. <laughs> I, I guess I, I would say that, that I wouldn't want to be fixed. Seen, so seen I'll doing go, that. I'll, <laughs> so the embarrassment factor would make you want to work a little harder. You know, I mean, if you're doing, if, if, it, if it's not a problem, but, but, uh, 
you know, what happens is, is if you do anything that, that, that doesn't look like production and something goes wrong, it, it is a, it's a, it's like four steps towards being under the bus, you, you know, like, you know, like, it's, you know, <laughs> like, like we talk about it, like there's, there's this thing about, you know, the, that there is, you know, you don't want to ever be the one in front of the bus when something goes wrong. Like that's the key in all of production is not to be the one in front of the bus. So when you're late, that's, that's only, that's not, that doesn't get you in front of the bus. It just takes a step towards it. When you, when your stuff doesn't look very good and it looks like you're kind of, it's kind of cobbled together. It's another step. When you ask people for things in production, like some other team for tape or a power outlet or something like another step, not, none of them by themselves are, are, are there, but they're, they're taking a little stroll towards the front of the bus. And, 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 um, but, but having something that looks like that people don't understand and using consumer equipment is like four or five steps towards the front of the bus. And so, and I work in large corporate events where it's, it's like a, it's like a Chinese fire drill. Like if something goes wrong, somebody's, everyone is looking for who's closest to the front of the bus and then they shove them. <laughs> so, so it's, so I, I, I do everything I can to stay. So stay away. for $80 at monoprice, you can get an HDMI audio and better that you can put in your rack. That doesn't look quite so janky. I, I you're everything we've said here is right. I might be, ever so slightly more right. <laughs> Good to have you back, Chris. <laughs> we missed you, Chris. <laughs> All right. It's All time. Right. We've had fun with that next question. Yeah. And at least I get to hear Janky twice in one question. <laughs> um, Alexander Knight from Vancouver, BC, Canada. For a Mac Mini and Zoom ISO setup, how do you send program video and audio back to the remote participants? On the Blackmagic quad card, is the ninth SDI port used for this? Mitch, help us out. No, I think that's a Genlock port there. Ah, that will not do that job. Alex, other thoughts? Yeah, it's a reference return. Um, in the quad, you could use one of the other ones. Remember, the quad can go both ways. So you can define um, another SDI input um, into, you know, as one, you can, I think they, they work in pairs, but you can make one of them. Uh, an input versus the output. So that can be something you can define in the quad card. I have to admit that usually when I'm sending it back, for whatever reason, I tend to be superstitious about hardware. Um, and uh, I'll my quad is my output. And my if I'm going to bring something in, I'm going to bring it in some other way. But you can absolutely use the quad for a return. And for the, if you want more reference and to do a little research on the internet, look up what a lot of us use, interruptible feedback or an IFB. You heard people talking about IFB a lot. That's typically a mix minus sent back down the line to somebody so that they can hear everything except themselves at a mix. And if you search on IFB, you'll at least get to the pages that discuss this process of going oh you, you're just saying that to, to build a mix minus to, to re-embed into that and and typically right. the the audio return that i would send back to folks probably on, on almost all of our systems come through via dante like we we can send them video back um you know through that video output but usually how it gets to the computer for program to go back to participants that are being pulled from a show is dante yeah i was just noting he said send program video and audio back sometimes it's Two separate. All right, let's move on to the next question. Paul Valhus is back from Austin, Texas, asking, what are some suggestions for after-hours labs and workshops, and where is this discussed in Discord? Javier is going to help us out here. Javier? Uh, I think the Discord channel is just as that, like that, like after like second hours uh, workshop or idea, sorry. 
Um, what I would really like to do or, or, or see uh, our labs would be for uh, Frame.io, especially Camera to Cloud. That's a workflow that I, I haven't really understood. And maybe if someone uh, knows how to do it, it would be great. Also, uh, maybe an audio restoration tool, because I've done some audio restoration where there's like a lot of tools, like from a different ranges that maybe someone can shed some light, to, like better uh, examples and everything. And the other one is I'm a little upset right now for like 3D graphics. I mean, like USDCs and all of that stuff, because I'm pretty sure that Keynote and Pages and pretty soon they're going to have like this integration where you can have these models. So knowing how to build them or at least like modify them for a simple, you don't have to be like a 3D artist or, or even uh, there's like this iOS app I have been playing around called Nomad Sculpting or Nomad app or something like that. And you just take like a piece of clay, like virtual clay, and you can shape it. And it's like a very an expensive program to do 3D assets, but uh, you have to know how to do it. So if someone has any of those skills, I would be very interested in those labs. Interesting. Alex? Yeah, those are great suggestions. I mean, I, I you know, I still lo would love to do one on Swift where we all start coding together, you know, to, to, to figure it all out as a group. Um, where we most of us start at zero, there might be some people that are a little ahead of us, but we all kind of and see if we can find someone that is an instructor or someone who knows enough that they feel like they can teach us. And we all kind of start building, like build an app together, I think would be a really fun thing to do. Um, I, uh, I agree with, uh, you know, everything that Javier said as well. Um, I think that, um, you know, Substance is really good. 3D Substance 3D is a good one. And I think you can download a demo. So maybe we time it. With some of these labs, we could time the labs. Like we're going to do a couple labs that are all happening during the demo period <laughs> so that you can decide whether you want to actually rent it or not, or at least do it within a month to month. Um, so that people can play with it. So you can decide if that's something that's great for you. But I think those are great suggestions. As long as I've been around here, I, I'm not completely aware of whether Discord has a section for after hours, does it? Because that might be you know, place. The, the best place to, to talk about it, uh, the best person to talk to about it as far as actual scheduling is uh, uh, Brandon Butram. So he, he'll, you know, if you find him on Discord, he's the one kind of manages after hours there. So he's the one that will um, start figuring out where that would go, et cetera. Perfect. Peter Sargent had another. I was about thought. to say, Brandon is the guy I've been talking to mm -hmm. because I've been uh, coerced yeah, and, into, and, into, into putting together a, a, a Memo Lab, a Memo perfect. Live. Well, I want to know when that one is. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, so um, you know, I've been coerced. <laughs> no, that's great. Yeah. I mean, if you're, if you're interested in second hours, Josh Kaufman is the person to talk to. And if you're interested in uh, after hours stuff, then uh, Brandon is the person to talk to. There you go. You've got some direct contacts. Next question. From Douglas Carmichael. Douglas asks, what would be the most comfortable to use for comms on long shows? Would a headset with a mic or head-worn mic be easier than a mic mounted on an arm and separate headset? We're going to start with Tom Ferguson. Tom? Well, I would start with what I'm wearing right now, and they're the OpenCom by Shocks. Here it is. You do have your microphone if you want to use that for your comms, and it leaves your ears open for getting program audio or anything else. You want to hear what's going around, but they're very comfortable. And Mitchell. Yep, Tom nailed it. That's the uh, answer to the question. Um, I would, however, like to suggest a different name than shocks to skull shakers. <laughs> there you go. Um, and I had my hand up for this before I started uh, in this chair today. So uh, for me, the idea is, uh, do you need to move around? Generally, if you don't need to be mobile, 
than a mic like we use at our desks because we're in a fixed position the whole thing i find easier to work with i don't like to wear a headset unless i have to because in case i have to get up and run out or something like that here i just have a small ifb i have to pull um but if you're on the road uh or anywhere you have to get up and move around a wireless connected head worn mic i think is the the class of the pack alex your thoughts on this oops you're muted the, obviously, my kit isn't all put to, back together yet. The the um, uh, I, I use the the shocks myself, and for exactly the way Tom talks about it, is that I can put a set of headphones in that is the program of the show, and have comms sitting on top of that, um, and that, that works really really well for me. Um, in the past, I've also, uh, as far, from a Bluetooth perspective, um, I have used the um, uh, the Parrot four fifties. Parrot four fifty is a is a really good one that that that's super solid. It has long distance and just works and it'll last all day. And then finally, um, if I'm using wired um, headsets uh, into a real like a real comm system, uh, I tend to use the Clearcom double muffs because it just pushes everything else out. Um, and and I I like those a lot. And next question. Mike Muddy Schlegel from Raleigh, North Carolina, has a question. I saw a session at Zoomtopia on the importance of body language, and the presenter was recommending a wider camera angle than the Fenwick Framer. How was the Fenwick Framer selected, and when might a wider shot be useful? And the inventor of uh, this process that you're watching today, Alex Lindsay, is going to weigh in, but Chris Fenwick is in line ahead of him, so Chris is going to go first. If somebody wants something different than the Fenwick, Fenwick Framer, they're wrong. No, um, you know, <laughs> defending the reason, your territory. The, the reason this happened was, um, and I have the photo somewhere. I, I wish I could pull it up quickly. Um, earlier on in office hours, uh, the history of of this uh, organization, um, I was at my house in Sacramento, and I um, I turned on the show. And uh, I was watching on like my, I don't know what it is, 6585, it's a big giant TV on the wall. And there's Alex Lindsay's in my living room like this, this giant head. And um, I had been sort of trying to encourage him to, to back off a little because of the, the lower third stuff. But, um, but I was, when, I was playing, when I started playing with it and I realized that if you put up your classic thirds, that... This was a comfortable shot with the eyes and the chin on, on the thirds. And so uh, I drew it up and I started playing with it just on my own. And then I started using it uh, during mic checks. And then people started asking about it. And then I, I went away for a week and I came back and Preto was telling me, he goes, yeah, Alex called your thing the Fenwick Framer or something. like Somebody did. And I didn't know that that had happened. But... Um, Sure, body language is important, but and Alex and I have talked about this about modifying this and making it a bit wider. And I started, uh, I spent like a couple hours one day going through a whole bunch of stuff on YouTube and just grabbing frames, grabbing frames, grabbing frames. And I will say that, and my focus is going to be off, that a little bit wider. I mean, so you can at least read somebody's T-shirt, right? You should be able to read the T-shirt, right? Um, a little bit wider might be good, but I don't think when you when you get into body language, you lose the the intimacy. So that's what that's the balance that you're trying to find. 
ultimately a community like this just has to come up with a standard. And I just got lucky because somebody liked liked it. And, and and it took Alex a while. He like looked at it and I said, Do you do you want to make is this what you want to do? And it and actually the other thing that was interesting was Jason. Uh because and Jason, you were part of how I came up with doing this because you know, you have this gigantic vertical hair thing going on, which is it's very too long now. I'm getting rid of it. I know, today. right? <laughs> and so and so when people were talking about headroom, they were framing for hair room. And that put the face, the part of the human that I'm talking to, much lower in the frame if you're going to make room for all of Jason's hair. And so I advocated just for saying, like, let's look at the face. So where does the face want to be? I don't care if somebody's hair goes out of frame. I'm not talking to their hair. I might be amazed by their hair, but I'm not talking to their hair. He's so, amazed by your hair, Jason. I just want to say. Thank you, sir. I started losing my hair <laughs> You want some, you can ago. have it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alex, you you weighed in next. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I so um, everybody has their own opinion about it. I the reason that that I think that this frame works is that it it feels very comfortable because mo- it looks very close to what you see on broadcast. So when you're watching a news coverage or whatever, it, it is that thing. I actually don't like it to be any wider than it is now because then I would have to iron my shirts below here, you know, and it would be really annoying, um, you know. So anyway, um, so I I, uh, I I don't think that that would be appropriate. I mean, I you know, so um, so I you know I I think that um, part of what I like about the closer frame is how much of my background I have to manage, how much of my body I have to manage, how much, if I want to bring up my hands and talk about something, I can just go up here and I choose to do that, but I'm not forced to do it, you know? And, and I think that that is, um, I think it's really important as far as how it feels when I'm in shows all the time, which I'm in, I'm in meetings and shows, you know, six to eight hours a day, and I would, you know, I, I, I want it to be relaxing for me. And I find that this is very relaxing. And I also find it very easy when I'm looking at a gallery. So not so much when we're looking face-to-face or, you know, whatever. But if I'm looking at a gallery, it is much easier to see what's going on for people when they're at head and shoulders. As a, If I want any wider, I just don't see them as well to get back to that. And it's just not as comfortable a conversation because they're smaller in frame. And so so I I, I feel pretty strongly that it could be slightly smaller than a Fenwick frame on a big monitor, just slightly, but I would never go any wider than that by choice. The end result of my going through and looking at a bunch of uh, frames one day, which Mm -hmm. I'm still totally open to do, is that we might want to loosen the Fenwick frame by 5 or 10%. Also, I will say that if you you really do get your head in it, uh, it's pretty good. I think... I think that a lot of people cheat it a little too much. Yeah. You know, they get yeah. a little just a, because there's a big difference between that and this, yeah. that and this. So anyway, I'm done. Alex uh, just finished. Mitchell Hill has a note. Yeah, it's uh, it's amazing where it gets where that Fenwick Framer is showing up. Um, here's my camera remote control, and if I click uh, this. Look what we're seeing there. That looks really familiar, Chris. And if you look really closely, I think down on the corner here, there's your signature showing up on the screen. So I just thought I'd point out that uh, 
if you make any changes, it's going to have to be made on a lot of different devices. Software everywhere. <laughs> is that an Fenwick. NFT version of the Fenwick? Like, they'll be like, is that the Fenwick 1 or is that the Fenwick 2? We've now created a standard. We have to leave it alone. Exactly. It's Walk a standard. Away. And the signature was a brilliant move. There you go. All right. We've had fun with this. Let's move on to the next question. Aaron Husledge from Durham, North Carolina, asked, I realize that Wi-Fi is subpar for many things in production, but have people done anything with Wi-Fi 6E and streaming? Alex. We haven't. Um, and I think that that would be a great thing to test to see what it's like. I, I think that I still believe that Wi-Fi will still be problematic because of the function of just how Wi-Fi works and how it manages its connections and how the APs work, but, but remains to be seen. Peter Sargent. Well, I... I I actually went and got a 6E access point for my house just to see. But the reality is, is as Alex has said all along, and I knew ahead of time, was don't use Wi-Fi for anything like this. Right? This is this is all wired connections out to my fiber. But but if you're streaming, all it's really going to do is give you another back channel between the between the access points to uh, to improve the the quality of the mesh. And I haven't found anything that will outrun uh, my Apple TV. So it's, you know, it was fine on six. It's fine on 60. It's not going to make a big difference. Alex, you wanted to get back in? Yeah, I would say that, that Wi-Fi works relatively well with good bandwidth if you are streaming. It's if you are in WebRTC or some kind of real-time protocol is where it breaks up. Uh, but but it actually does okay with streaming. What doesn't do okay for many streaming uh, things as mesh networks. So right. mesh networks um, get, there's so much jitter in there for for that. It can oftentimes drop um, in the middle of a, of a stream. But if you're just straight Wi-Fi, uh, you should be okay for streaming uh, as long as you have a lot of bandwidth because it's going to move all the packets it need to out in, inside of that buffer all the time and it won't be nearly as problematic. There you go. Next question. Vic Fernandez from Springfield, Missouri. Anyone who has ordered from Sweetwater knows their level of service is top-notch. My lifetime span is less than $100. I received a message from my new point of contact introducing himself. Is there any better service? Alex Lindsay. Uh, for pure audio, probably not. I mean, Sweetwater, you know, is, is pretty high up there. Um, I will say that the uh, the DVE store is the is the other one that I would say when you're looking for for really really high quality customer service, you always just feel like you're on the inside. <laughs> you know, like when you when you talk to someone at, at DVE store, it's like you've got a friend somewhere that's going to handle the stuff for you, and they're going to figure this out, and they're going to do this thing, and then you know, and then it comes the next day. And so I, I will say that Guy runs a really tight ship, and just a great every person I talk to at DVE store is is uh, has been great. Um, and uh, but I've been ordering from Sweetwater for pure audio stuff for 15 years. And uh, Robert Williams, he's my guy. <laughs> like, can I call if I'm trying to figure something out? I, I call him and I'm just like, hey, what's going on here? I'm, I'm trying to figure this thing out. And then, and I, I don't even call with something I want to order. I call with something I'm trying to figure out. You know, in an audio world, and he'll come back with a bunch of suggestions. Say, well, this mic is really good for this, or this is it. But you want to check this out, and and then we sort it all out, and then I order something, and then I get a little bit of candy. It's the only time I I, I get a bit of honeys. Ooh, that, that, that's value add right there, Mitch. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I agree with Alex 100%. Uh, Jimmy Hart is my uh, contact over there, and I buy a lot of stuff from them. In fact, I completely bamboozled him one day when I called him. I said, look, I want a uh, mic pre, um, and I don't care what it costs. I just want the very best mic pre-amplifier equalizer that's made to man or woman. 
And um, he made a suggestion. In my case, it was the Neve 8801, and that's what I have. Yeah, they, they love clients like you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can do that. Yeah, exactly. uh, Javier, <laughs> so next. Uh, I, uh, Mickey in the chat is putting, and I really agree with him, that sometimes, especially for like for audio, there are like specialized shops that are by engineers, for engineers, like True Audio, like Gotham Sound, and maybe in Mexico there's someone as well, because so sometimes you need like someone that has the problem, that has had to solve things in production, like help you. So sometimes they don't have like this big uh, stock of things or maybe but they can help you find the right tools because you can talk to them and tell them i need to solve this problem rather than i have to buy this thing and maybe they can help you with uh, a custom solution and location sound in, in la is one that i've had that exact experience with that you're in there looking at stuff trying to figure stuff out and talking to folks about it you're absolutely right i was going to mention them as well for location audio recording they have all the pros in there all the time and pretty much know that industry backwards and forward jason has a thought uh, yeah, plus one again for DVE store. Um, but also, yeah, uh, Gotham Sound is incredible. They, they're just, yeah, they, for very specific things, um, Mickey's guy has been pretty incredible. And Mitchell. You know, it's interesting about these companies like uh, DVE store, B&H, Adorama, all those companies, Sweetwater included, um, is that it's an easier place to look something up and get the specs and details on a device. And then the added bonus is a lot of times there's a, a Q&A, which uh, will give you a little insight into the device, and reviews. Um, I kind of avoid uh, corporate um, websites because I know I'm getting the, uh, the straight stuff from uh, those websites. Yeah, and I will just say regarding our friend Guy in the DVE store, I, it's one thing because we know Guy. He's been on the panel, and so we can call and talk to Guy. I have gone to the DVE store and, and not talked to Guy and had just an interaction with somebody in the back end. My experience has been exactly the same in terms of follow-up and everything else. So to me, that it's it's the in it's the business and it's how the owner or leader moves these ideas through the whole uh staff there so that you can call anybody and get the same kind of experience. I think that's pretty impressive. Alex, you had thoughts? And the last thing I will say, uh, you know. At scale, I'm still amazed every time I ping Zoom about support, and I and I get a response in like ten minutes. Like it, and and, and then it, it, and, it, and things get ratcheted up, and then very quickly things get either handled or I'm told that I can't have it or I can't have it or this is what I need. But the 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 speed at which Zoom works is is at scale. It's not really the same as what we're doing here. Is kind of amazing. I ho I wish more companies were like that. Yeah. Well, I think everybody knows in this era where social media, you know, you make a bad misstep for a client, it goes far thing. They're paying attention to this. We all benefit from that. That's a good thing. Uh, next question. Paul Valhus from Austin, Texas, piggybacking on yesterday's question about the gallium arsenide chargers, which specific models are recommended for the new generation of iPhones and S22 Galaxy phones? And can Apple MagSafe be used on an S22? Alex is going to start us. I don't know about all the answers there, but the one the one that I have, I I, I admit that it doesn't have a very easy to remember name. A Wodo BS is <laughs> the one that I got that I use all the time, and uh, it doesn't have a big name to it. It's got three USB C chargers. Uh, it's a hundred watt um, power supply, and um, it uh, it has been super useful. It's it's Jason. Oh. Yeah, Jason. Uh, I I was just about to unclick. Al Alex got all of the hit all the points i have exactly the same one and i i absolutely love it harshid 
you cannot use the uh, charger for S22 Ultras, but or S22 in general. But the Qi charger is something that is somewhat uh, similar to the Android world. The MagSafe is basically a magnet in the back of a iPhone that then they sell you the other half of it that sits on the charger and clicks it in place. So uh, can't use that. Interesting. I, the new MagSafe, I'm trying to rebrand myself from the old MagSafe being the little power connector on the laptops that everybody was upset about when it went away to this new big circle uh, magnetic contact charger. And But I'm starting to see as the rest of the accessories come out from this, particularly car mounts and things like that, that in the long run, it's probably going to be a better thing to migrate to. Uh, Alex, your thoughts? Yeah, it doesn't go, it doesn't charge as fast. None of them do. And so I won't use them. And I also, I don't even like it on my watch. Like I, I really just want to, I just really want to plug it in, um, you know, because it, it oftentimes it gets pushed to one side or it gets, you gets, you know, off. I, so I wasn't really answering that question because I have never actually done that with my phone. Fair enough. Next question. Keenan Campbell, new resident of Nevada, asks now that Fenwick has made his return to the panel. Let's talk about the SEMA show and his first experience as an attendee, plus the follow-on video productions. And let's see, who should we go to for an answer? Oh, Chris Fenwick will be the answer for this. Chris? So literally right now, just in the uh, panel chat, I should, probably should have put that in the event chat. I'm, let me copy this and paste, paste it into the event chat. I did the wrong thing. So, um... SEMA is a giant show, and I'd never been to it before. What uh, is it? What does it stand for? It's, it's car stuff. Um, I don't even know what it stands for. Uh, car, Society car of Car Stuff. Cars. Exceptional um, motoring accessories. I'm making that up. It's probably right. So it is. It, this year, it was all of LVCC. West, North, Central, South, Upper, and Lower Halls. It was the whole thing. Uh, it's a zoo. It, 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 it's it's fascinating. It's not all my cup of tea. Um, but like, for example, uh, Keenan and I were walking through and there's a guy who sells paint booths, like to paint cars. And his booth was a paint booth, <laughs> which was kind of cool. Very well lit, by the way. Um, you, you can get anything. And it's primarily B2B, um, although uh, this year on Friday, they and I, I guess they've done this in the past, they open it up to the consumers. And so Keenan and I went. Uh, it's a hundred bucks, hundred bucks to get in and look at a bunch of cars. Um, if you just want to see some cars, there's a lot out in the parking lot you can see for free. Um, so really interesting. What I would like to say is there is a, a, a group out of Australia called Patriot Campers. Uh, Patriot Campers, by the way, is a great company. It's family owned. All of their promotion is done via their YouTube show. Uh, which is called Patriot Games, no, no relation to the movie. Um, and it is, it, it's the kind of thing where I look at it and I'm like, I, I wish I, I wish my family could be as tight as their family because they take their campers out and they go explore the outback and do stuff all over Australia. They were at SEMA and they produced a, in a week and a half time, they produced a 55 minute, uh, this is our take on SEMA. I will say, uh, and that's why I put the link in the in the thing. I would love to go through this video and break it down shot for shot. It is awesome coverage. It is um, it is not 
the kind of coverage that Alex uh, lobbies for often, uh, the one take, let's go through and get your booth. It's not that kind of coverage. It's, it's um, emotional, emotionally charged coverage. Um, I want to know how many shots they take per booth. I want to count them. I want to, I want to look at any segment in the show and break it down to the um, percentage of on-camera talking, percentage of B-roll. Every time you go to B-roll, how many shots of B-roll? Are you cutting on a four-count, two-count, or a one-count on the B-roll? What percentage of it are you doing four-count, two-count, or one-count on the B-roll uh, to the music? How much of it is music full? Like To break it down quantifiably um, would be a fascinating task because... I think it's a great show, and I think I'm I'm always on the quest to quantify aesthetics. I like this. I don't like this. Why do I like it? And I think that breaking it down mathematically uh, would be super fascinating. I, I don't know if I have that amount of time, but it's a great show. Uh, it was a lot of fun. I don't it, I don't recommend that that's the kind of coverage that you do because I think the Alex Lindsay approach of coverage is let's find the little things that nobody else is talking about. This is hundred uh, percent uh, uh, opposite that. No, I mean, I, I, I'm not, I'm not criticizing what you do. I think, I think the way you like to cover things is, is very cool, Alex. This is the opposite of that. These, these guys went and they, they kissed, butt for the people that already sponsor their show. They were promoting the people that are supporting them. But the coverage of the show itself was really cool. Really cool. Peter Sargent wants to get in on this. Peter? Well, I was just say Chad put it in the, in the chat, but it's the Specialty Equipment Manufacturers Association. It goes back to the 60s, and it surprise, surprise, it grew out of the hot rod era in, in Southern California. There you go. Alex? Yeah, and all I'd say is that I would love to do those, those kind of videos. I just don't have time. So the, the the amount of editing that's required to make that video go go well is just more than I. So when I say, "Oh, I'm going to do these one these one shots," I do those because it is fast and furious. It all happens during that event, and it all pump, pummels out that that day. Typically, like I'm, I have a very my view of covering these is that I never want to think about them again once I get out of them. <laughs> You know, like I, I go in, I go in, I plan for like, you know, my, my approach to NAB or CES or whatever is I'll plan for a couple of weeks of like thinking, you know, but not full time, just like, uh, you know, and I'll, I'll email some folks and you know, make sure I'm on the press list. So I get all the emails about what's coming and I'll get, I have a kind of an idea. The first day I'll get there, I'll look around and I'll take pictures. So I remember what I was going to cover. And then the next day I'll just cover everything or maybe two days I'll cover everything. And I... And then, but by the day I leave, I, I've never had the luxury. I may be able to do that in the future now, but I may, I've never had the luxury of, I have to go back to work. Like, and, and so if, if I don't, what I found is if I didn't, if I put any post into it, literally I have whole show coverage that never, like I, I have two IBCs that never made it out. <laughs> I have one IBC that's up there and two IBCs that I, I shot all the footage. And then I was like, I'm going to do it different this time. I'm going to give exactly what you're talking about. And it's still, it's, it's good coverage, but yeah, didn't get anywhere because I had to go back to work. Yeah, it's, just because. Oh, go ahead, Chris. Finish. I was just going to say it's definitely two different approaches for sure, mm -hmm. uh, because one is very much based on entertainment, one is very much based on uh, uh, the dissemination of knowledge. Uh, but I got to say, uh, I watched this thing glued to it and was just fascinated by it, and, and I think that 
when you find anything that you like, whether it's music or art or something, to try and break it down and try and oh, yeah. quantify what, why, why yeah, do absolutely. I like this? It's absolutely. And when Chris mentioned the auto paint booth, I just had to remind myself there is a type of jewelry made out of Fordite, and they got that from taking down the walls of a paint booth that cars have been painted in for decades. And it's really fascinating. So look up Fordite, F-O-R-D-I-T-E, and you will see some interesting stuff there. Next question. Matthias Oita from Helsinki, Finland, browsing in-ear monitors in Linsol websites. Can panel give recommendations for sub-$50 options? Alex will help us out. Yeah, I just put it in the, in Makana. It is the now I can't remember the name of. I, I I carefully found the link for it, and then I put and then I typed in Patriot Camp Campers while I was listening to Chris, and now I don't have it. But it's the Linsoles. They're forty nine dollars without the mic. The mics are worthless. Don't 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 get the Linsoles with the mic. Um, and it's just a little change in the in the cable, and they're not very good. I'm wearing them right now. So that's what I'm wearing right now is the $49 Linsoles. I have boxes of them that I send out to people if I need to. Um, and uh, do not get the more expensive ones. There's $150 ones or $125 ones. I bought those. They're bigger in your ears and they actually are not as comfortable. So the $49 ones are the ones that that I have. And when they will wear out, there's a little plate on the front of them, that, on the front of the ear that will, that will eventually fall out. It will still work for a while uh, after that, but then you'll get a new one. Um, so they're not they're not the most durable um, versions of these things, but I, I I really I keep them in all my bags because they're so inexpensive that I just have like three or four of them floating around in different bags. So I always have a pair of headphones I can jump throw into. But that's the one. Next question. Paul Valhus, Austin, Texas, asks: Once the panel is cast in concrete, no one can come and go. Will cameos be allowed in the next two point five version of office hours? Alex. I don't know whether it'll be 2.5 or 3.0, but it'll get pretty methodical after that. You know, so it will be um, definitely something that is there's process, and for the most part, the panelists will be, uh, you know, invited uh, weeks in advance. So, so I think that that'll be probably the um, the process. There will be a lot less flexible. So, if you are interested in being a panelist, <laughs> you should reach out to us uh, because this is the right time to get in and um, see how you do. And even if you come on and just and just hang out a little bit, but we're, we're, we'll make a lot of decisions as we go through that. Next question. In from the UK, Nick Bat asked, I'm using Companion to switch presets in my Visca PTZ. Is there a way to set the speed between presets? I want to do some slow preset pans. Jason. Um, yeah, there, there absolutely is. Um, if you look at the Companion module called Sony Visca, It'll show you all the different settings. I'll, I'll put it in uh, Mukana chat, but they've got pan tilt speed, uh, pan tilt speed up, and pan tilt speed down. And if your camera doesn't support those, there's also a pan tilt slow mode. And once you enable that, you're good to go. Peter Sargent. Yeah, I was going to say exactly what, what uh, Jason just talked about. I do that on my PTZ camera that's behind me. And, you know, I can set the speed either variably but you're setting the pan speed, the tilt speed deliberately, and then invoking the preset. Because you actually, you can't do it in the preset itself. You have to program in, program it in and tell it to do it at a certain speed. Right. Next question. Dan Chan from San Francisco, California. What software is used to create this type of presentation animation? 
And there is a link there. I was not able to find the time to go do that since I wasn't sure about this. Did anybody take a look at this and see? I guess maybe no one had a chance to do that. So, Stan, uh, if you can hold on your question and come back uh, tomorrow or something, we'll try to get to it earlier and take a look and see what time uh, type of presentation animation you're involved with. It looks like it's a write-on. Um, so I think that what he's looking oh. at there is is um, a, you know, it's kind of a... Um, so like a whiteboard kind of building thing? Yeah. You know, it's it's hard to tell. I mean, again, these are the kind of questions definitely to ask before the top of the hour. So we have time to kind of play with them. But a lot of these aren't as complicated as it would look. So when I'm looking at them, the, some of the ones are a little bit more complicated. But a lot of them look like circular wipes. Um, sorry. Um, a lot of them look like circular wipes that might be activated slightly at different times, which makes them look way more impressive than they actually are, which is great. I mean, that's that's a great way to do that. But it, you know, most of these look like basic presentation. Um, I would say basic presentation tools. You could probably do everything that you see there in Keynote. Next question. Next question to Mike Beardmore from Reading UK. I noticed that the panel screen is rounded corner framing. The two up has square ones, and the one up has no framing. How was this design settled upon? Uh, Alex, you want to weigh in on this? Yeah, I, I think that there was, a, there was an issue. Number one is I like the rounded framing, um, and I would prefer the rounded framing for the, the panelist, uh, the, the two ups and three ups and so on and so forth. There was some, the amount of technical uh, rigmarole when we first did it in version one to put the rounded corners on was not worth the effort. Like that was why that didn't get put in. Um, it was, uh, you know, because you could, it was easy to put the outlines on it, but it was, we, otherwise we had to key it over it. With the one that when you see the whole background, um, you'll see the, um, that's just a, a mortise that we add on top of everything. It's, it's just a six, 16 up or nine up or whatever that has a mortise sitting on top of it. And that could, we could round. And I keep on wanting to go back to that and round those corners <laughs> in the <laughs> in the super source. And I just haven't looked at whether it's gotten any easier, but it was not trivial to do that um, in the past. And I think part of it was that we were also in the very first version. You know, what happens sometimes is you make a bunch of decisions based on things that don't no, no longer exist. The other thing we were doing is we were animating things and animating them with rounded corners was no minor thing. Now that we're not animating them, we theoretically could put rounded corners on there and we just have to take a look at it. But I think that the rounded corners should just I find them to be more pleasing. Um, so I would love to do that. But but I think that there was a series of issues that we made that decision a while ago and haven't returned to it. But that's why. Next question. Next question. And for me, how do you get from an XCON Ethernet to regular Ethernet? And Mitch, you've got something to show us. Yeah, I got something to show. Let me try to get it in focus. How is it that whenever you want to focus something, you can't do it? Hello, there it is. Um, as you can see here, there's an Ethernet plugged into what looks like um, an XLR, and I guess it's there so you don't pull that cable out by mistake. So I'm wondering, where do you find those things? Uh, they, they're not readily available. Where it's a regular Ethernet on the other end because it's got to plug into my switch. So there's the question. Okay, next question. Next question from Douglas Carmichael. Has the Office Hours 2.0 or 2.5 team ever thought about documenting the infrastructure to both reduce operator error risks and provide us another resource to learn from? Alex. 
It's definitely discussed, and and there are parts of it that are that are documented. I, a lot of it is that the train is moving, and we're continuing to change it, so it's hard to. It's like, well, that sheet doesn't work anymore. So, um, so I think that there's, it's not out of the question that we'll do more documentation once we finish uh, finish that process. Um, and one way that we document it also is just kind of going through it with everyone and putting it out there. Um, the the thing is, is that we're moving so quickly. So as soon as we finish two point five, we're going to start discussing three. And at that point, we have to, you know, we, I think there'll be more energy spent on moving forward than documenting. But if there's people that want to be on a documentation team, um, let us know. There you go. Next question. Jeff Cohen, Miami Beach, Florida, ask what headset mic is Peter using? Bonus points for the panel's thoughts on its sound or recommendations for something similar. Seems to make sense to go to Peter for this answer. Peter? The DPA 4066 going through a mix pre 3M. There you go. DPA makes fine headset and lavalier microphones. Next question. Douglas Carmichael, in discussions about Twitter's infrastructure, the word microservices has come up multiple times. What are they? How do they communicate with each other? That's an interesting question. Nobody on the panel has raised a hand for this one, and I have not, I'm not that familiar with the term microservices myself. Uh, obviously, just parsing it, it probably takes, uh, you know, the idea of not making your living with products, but services and takes it down to the little small, tiny ones that, uh, that maybe you charge less for and do more volume. Chris, what are your thoughts? My understanding about microservices is essentially in the SaaS or software as a service, uh, realm. Uh, sometimes it's easier for me to buy, uh, I'm going to put it this way. I'm going to buy a button instead of actually write all the code behind it. So like, let's say, for example, I needed to, um, um, I wanted to put a webcam in my piece of software or, or a video feed. You can, software as a service, you may be able to actually buy the feature of here is how your video pipeline goes through your thing. And now by just paying a small fee, I get that feature. I don't have to code it from scratch. The problem with software as a service is that you are creating, uh, sorry, uh, microservices, is that you are building your empire by leaning a bunch of other things against it or, or leaning your empire against a bunch of other things. And if anybody's server goes down, your features will die. And um, that's, that's the problem with microservices as opposed to just building something from scratch. Building something from scratch takes longer. It's all on you. Um, you don't get to uh, capitalize on somebody else's advancements. And I will also say that literally everything I just said may be completely wrong. <laughs> Peter Sargent, any thoughts real quick before we switch? Well, microservices is a way of, is a programming architecture construct. It basically says, if you go back, frankly, when I started in the business, we wrote applications in a large monolithic way. The database access, the network access, the UI was all one large program, insert expletive here. And we actually started to break them down and further break them down to now I could go in and have in the past go in and say, I want to change this particular thing that I want to do in the application and it doesn't 
touch anything else and I can swap it out almost at a moment's notice. So we've talked in after hours about, you know, there are some banking applications that are making a couple thousand changes a week because they have it segmented down to these microservices to the point where they can swap something out and swap something in without the end user knowing it happened. Interesting. So it sounds a little bit like subroutines, but but isolated and it, at a more it, granular level. Level. I think it's 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 not just an external thing. It's it is a it is a microservice. A microservice is kind of a subroutine. It's a small. It's a it's a more robust subroutine. But it is basically you know I can build the core app, and the core app has to go through a lot of things to make sure that it keeps working and make sure it's integrated. But there's these little extra things, like the one that I think came up with Twitter recently was that. Um, they were going to cut off a bunch of core, you know, uh, microservices, and one of them happens to be two-factor authentication. So there was a there was a concern that if you log out, you can't get back in. So because that that's a little it's microservice that, that, that does the, the, <laughs> because it, it's not part of the core Twitter app. It, it is a when you log in, it's it's going to run you out to here and do something that it's not necessarily an external uh, service. It's just that it's a small service with a small team that only has to worry about this one thing. And so more like a plugin where you goes, I'm going to go out and I'm going to take the data and I'm going to approve it. Like when you, now an external service like that is if you sign into Mokana, you're doing a microservice that we, um, contract from Google. <laughs> so, so like it, it, it manages all that for us and we don't do it at all. Pete, was that from before? Or do you have another thought you want to toss I think, out on I think, this? I think we're out. Okay, we're done. That means it's time to switch to second hour's panel discussion. We have some guests here, and Alex is going to take the helm back to, to take us into this. Alex? Hey, so when something big happens um, or, or special happens, uh, we often like to talk about it. And uh, last week, we, in the United States, at least, we had a big election. The election's not quite done yet. So we're working on it though. And um, and while it's still in, in process, uh, we thought we'd bring some of our graphics experts in. Um, we've got uh, Bo Cordell and Chris Brown here um, who uh, who do a little bit of graphics here and there now and again. And um, and the uh, and they they uh, are good sources for us to to discuss all of this. Um, what was the election night like for the two of you, um, Bo and Chris? Oh, can't hear you. Oh, well, I was lucky enough to be uh, in New York for uh, election night, and uh, I was working at uh, Fox News Corporation, uh, just basically there as a technical assist. We had designed their virtual set, and uh, the main thing we, going into this uh, trackless and track virtual set, I bet, like, day of was making sure that all the data was working correctly. And I think that, as we'll see, I think, across the board, as we talk about all this, is really trying to display data as up to date and as accurately as possible. And there's so many races that are happening. Um, Cause if you think about it, 435 house seats, which is the, you know, the house of representatives of the United States uh, that's, you know, there's two candidates at least that are running for each one of those. And so that just means that you have a, 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 such a large number of names to get correct uh, and, you know, being able to pull on that data. So that was, you know, once that all started working correctly, it was just smooth sailing from there. When do people start um, actually, and if you have questions for, and uh, uh, Lenny Nelson uh, just joined us as well. So Len, Lenny's here as well. Hey, Lenny, good to see you. Um, and, uh, but what, uh, I guess, and if you have questions for 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 Bo, Chris, or Lenny, go ahead and throw them into Mercana. Um, uh, qu question for Chris, when did you start prepping those graphics? Like when did, when did your team start to work on them? So I'd say, uh, you know, 
discussions about you know, scope started back in May, and then by June first, we were we were working on the design for it. We were lucky enough to have clients who had a very clear vision for what they wanted out of this. Um, they wanted to have a capital set uh, that basically had an exterior that could be lit for either uh, night or day, just in case they needed to carry on if the, the collection somehow. I mean, it obviously still being counted right now, but they weren't sure if they were going to want to do coverage the next day at that same set. And then also wanted to be able to go inside this Capitol building and go to the Senate floor and the House floor where both those uh, legislation, legislative houses do their work um, to be able to visualize the you know balance of power between two major parties in the United States, the Democrat and Republican, uh, Democratic and Republican Party. Um, so they asked for that. And so once we understood that, it was really just, you know, trying to build to fit their original, I guess, goal, which was to be able to exit their set to go into this world, either through a, uh, you know, a tracked camera to a trackless camera setup, or also have an engine running where you could just go in and visualize uh, what you want it to just through a traditional wiper dissolve. And Bo, you might have a couple uh, little pieces of examples for this. Yeah. So I was tangentially involved, which allowed me the opportunity to record some stuff and, and uh, got a couple things kind of put together to show, but, um, and Lenny might be able to speak more to some of these things. We didn't work on a lot of this stuff, but this was some of the CBS news stuff, which I thought was really impressive. They used a lot of uh, Stipe, red spy on the steady cam in their studio so mm-hmm. you can see their floor kind of opens up and uh they're doing some some neat ar there yeah that is uh, actually skype does the um uh, stipe does the camera trap tracking uh system and uh that's a viz um viz engine that uh, does the uh the ar rendering as well as the yeah so set here extension. you've got that ceiling st- set extension that was really cool thought y'all did a you know whoever, whoever did that thought they did a great job on it um and lenny this was something that was done in bizrt uh that that uh those the three-dimensional um artwork was done in uh viz engine and uh that that's what's doing the live rendering um that actually there's probably about six engines running to uh do that composition right that's interesting yeah and one thing that i think that we've gotten better at is while we can do green screen it doesn't mean that we have to all the time (laughs) <laughs> so one thing that yeah. you, uh, that I always notice is is that usually the graphics sit on top of something behind it, but we don't. Yeah. There's a careful like let's not have the people be in front of the graphics, and you know, and so you'll notice how carefully everything gets really close to the top of their heads or or to them. But we we kind of keep the graphics on top, and I think that that um, tends to be easier and more manageable, wouldn't you say? Um, yeah, it's just just makes it, and that's more of the what I guess how we refer to it as the AR. Um, part yeah, well, of that is augmenting that rather than keying it in. Yeah, and I think that's what you saw a lot of this election is a lot of uh, a lot of people using Unreal Engine to do either augmented reality, um, whether it's through the Viz tools, through the ROS tools. Um, you know, you saw a lot of capital sets. Uh, like, let's see, uh, this was uh, let's see, this was a. Uh, one of the Fox News sets that we're familiar with, but basically you can see they they're just panning over and kind of a set extension into a virtual world. Right. So then you fully enter the virtual world here. They're able to do all their graphics that's fully data driven, and uh, you know tell the story. So it's kind of merging that you know real world into 
digital world that's that we saw several a couple networks do uh you also saw that same kind of effect with nbc they kind of made it a little window into their studio before they went into the fully digital world so there you can see the camera kind of morphing from the digital camera to the or the real camera to the digital camera and then uh lenny is this uh, this might be i think this was another viz workflow that that uh yeah NBC this is using. uh this is viz engine um this was on uh nbc or yeah nbc um they actually had a, a little bit of unreal going as well so the viz engine rendered the uh the capital there and then unreal took care of the rest of the city if you will um i'm trying to pull up a clip here on my system but yeah that's that's how that was done and i actually have a little bit of behind the scenes from the nbc uh studios as well if y'all so, yeah give me just a second i'll pull oh. that up i just gotta and, gotta gotta go to the right clip on my playback machine here okay. and lenny so on this one we see you can see that the the virtual world doesn't change but the foreground elements kind of the planes change so in this situation, are those planes coming from a different CG engine that is just video input into the? Yes. Uh, well, yeah. yeah, they're they're actually rendered into the entire scene through Viz Engine. So uh, there's actually multiple uh, systems feeding into one uh, comp composition engine, basically. Um, so you got one one uh, taking in the uh, virtual camera information, one rendering the uh, capital. And then the foreground elements are being rendered on top of it, and they're all being uh, composited in another uh, uh, controlling system. And then there's actually a, a uh, graphics controller as well that can do all the transitions and everything itself, as well as another system feeding all the data into it. So um, there was a lot of like, a, uh, what, what would we call them, sort of modules, packages put together that you can feed different, different data into and different graphics into. So yeah. let me, I'm trying to find this clip. Give me one second. <laughs> And 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 I think that the two of the leaders in this area, of course, is are what Ross is doing and what yeah. Vizart, the VizRT is doing. I think those are probably two of the the kind of the forefronts of of what what we're, what we're seeing. Um, and so, and where else was was so we had VizRT at 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 a couple of these, and where else? And Ross was used for the Fox News. Was it used anywhere else for the election coverage? I can say for a fact that uh, the VizRT uh, was used at NBC and CBS and uh, ABC as well. Well, why did that quit playing? Okay, so here's a little bit of behind the scenes of the NBC studios. Um, this is a pretty, pretty wild drone tour. Um, so this is the main NBC set. Um, I'm going to go through this a little fast um, where the anchor sat when you watch the uh, main show. And then it kind of cruises through and then uh, we go down the hallway and you'll see one of the coolest control rooms you've ever seen in your life. And here we go. Um, this was this was quite impressive. Did they tell um, everyone to stay in very still? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, everyone's sitting very still for this this uh yeah, we're, this, this game we're playing. Like everyone be really, really still for a second. Don't stay. <laughs> Don't up. look at it. Don't look yeah. at the drone flying by. Um, and then it goes, you know, through the uh, the rest of the Rockefeller Center here. So that was the main NBC stage. And then um, come around the corner here, go through. So there's some of the just green room people. And oh, that was security, sorry. And then, you know, and then we go in the elevator. I've watched this a couple of times. Um, all right. Then we go down. And now, now we're going to the MSNBC studio control room because they run everything out of the same place because they, they uh, leverage the same hardware and the same uh, data sets. 
Um, but again, pretty impressive with what, what that gallery that they have there. And then they go down the hallway to the actual studio. Yeah, and so this one had room for an audience, as you can see. And so they continue using this throughout the week um, for their, their daily shows or morning shows. They're, they're just their news commentary shows. And then if you watch, there's a cool thing around the corner here. Where's that green screenshot? Oh, yeah, here we go. And then this is their uh, digital stage. So this is where the News Now one, so where the uh, online guys are. And then here's one of the cooler sets. Okay, so this has a green screen, right? And you see some of the engineers working on it right there. And then it comes over to the touchboard and whatnot. Um, so this set is used to make, let me pull it up, this shot. Okay, so as uh, they were showing you earlier, um, we got the AR, we got the uh, virtual uh, uh, capital and everything, but and then it goes to sort of a seat uh, map. But then the cool thing is it goes around the capital here, and I'll just play this. And then it comes into the actual live set where the uh, analysis is being done. So um, I'll back that up a little bit so you can kind of see what happened there. So this is obviously all virtual. And then at about here on this left edge here, right about And that means there, that, that, that the motion curve from the virtual camera has to lock into the, the, yes. the motion well, control I, arm to yeah. match the movement into the real yeah, world, right? Exactly. So right about there um, where that, that edge is, you'll see it comes around and and it, what's kind of cool is because it's it's three-dimensional and and it's smart you know you can you can get the parallax there so that everything looks like it is looking mm -hmm. through a window at it as it comes through into watching the, the right. guy do his analysis so um that was one of the cooler uh gimmicks <laughs> cooler uh tricks that they do to present this data um you know uh, elections are huge um opportunities for these news stations to gather advertising and viewers because there's so much money like, like, like the, the thing is, is that, I mean, just so everyone's watching, the reason that elections uh, do all the cool things is because everyone's making so much money on all those election ads. So if you're going to ever do anything, you're going to do it during an election season. Like if you want to play with graphics, you know, outside of, you know, pro sports or whatever, you're, this is the time to like pull all the stops out where you, no one's going to ask you where, why you spent a million dollars on that, you know? And, and uh, so I, I've grown, you know, usually when we did the biggest, craziest projects in uh, that I worked on, it was always around election season <laughs> so so anyway uh uh chris and Bo, is there anything else that you wanted to show or talk about that you saw or or, or worked on uh let's see the only other thing i can really show is can kind of show a little bit of the kind of like the operator workstation mm -hmm. just kind of what 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 buttons the operators are going to be pushing and you know as is typical during a project like this you would like to make it a lot prettier and and uh and whatnot but uh, you, you end up making it functional and move on. But basically, we have a workflow where we're able to uh, operate, uh, you know, five engines in this case off of one control system. So, you know, we can enable and disable the engines that we're talking to at the moment. Um, <clears throat> on the right side, you're choosing your environment or, you know, which races you want to pull up. And then you're, uh, you know, you're doing the camera flies or you're choosing the the graphics and whatnot. Um, and like Chris was saying, it's all the, you know, it's all data driven. So, uh, the data is coming 
uh, from another system that's informing the graphics on who to show when. Uh, so right. it's well, and and that's uh, very much like that's a very this is this is the the uh, the big heavy iron version of what we do. The simple version of what we do in office hours, where we just go, okay, who needs to be in the super source? <laughs> just gonna throw you know, and, and they you know, and that data is passed to it. It just throws it in there rather than someone explicitly doing it. In this case, you're saying I want to look at this race or this thing and all the data that's related to it is being generated. Is that, is that correct, Chris? So, so what, what we were actually doing, so like that operator panel is more like a uh, technical director for like, what do you want the camera to do uh-huh. in Got this it. world? Okay. So like it, it was able to take us to a couple of different um, places around that set, whether mm-hmm. it was the capital steps to do the race boards, of like individual candidates against each other or to the Senate or house floor and it, and it was allowing you to do that in a bunch of different creative ways, but all the data. So basically they have a elections team that's pulling data from the associated press. And then that is basically updating their own database. And they have a proprietary software they developed um, called Stackmaster, which is basically just a rundown system where the producer can then go and say, I want to look at Colorado District 2 the house then i want to look at nevada district one and like put put it all in like a rundown in traditional way that you would in a lot of these newsroom workflows and then what we would do is uh they could choose to go to the next one and our unreal like using voyager we basically through blueprints and uh data link which is our ross plugin that can basically parse a json file that uh, their stack master is putting out. Basically, when it sees data change, it would automatically change all those numbers and pull those right. uh, you know candidate photos in and do all that automatically. So there was that operator didn't have to worry about anything editorially. So, and, and well, yeah. So so the operator is is saying, okay, this is where I want to go. But and then the producer is deciding what's going to be there when you get there, right? I mean, or the a content producer is going to say, I want this. And then that content producer is not really putting it in. They're, acts, they're grabbing data. So they're saying, I want to see the Pennsylvania Senate race. The operator is saying, go over to this space. The producer is saying, I want to see the Pennsylvania race. The, the When it says that, it's grabbing data from Associated Press, managing it and sticking it in there so that it can be as as live as possible. It's quite a thing. That's correct. And we also had to think through a lot of different situations where um, you know, some things are just basic data that's coming from the Associated Press, like, you know, the vote count percent in, but then there is definitely an editorial decision based on like when a race becomes called. So that's something that gets decided by their election team. And there's also a data point that comes up, but we had to think through a lot of the different um, situations where like, okay, so as the, you know, as numbers are coming in and the percent reporting is coming in, you know, how do you want to show that line? You want it to actively update while it's on, you know, while it's actually in program. And those are things that like, you know, we had to go through a lot of different iterations. Like originally they were like, oh, well, we don't want it to change because it looks like it's popping around. But then they're they're like, well, we also don't want to make it look like we're fudging numbers. So then we'll let it pop a little bit. So it was just one of those things that what we ended up with was just like that balance between trying to make it look as clean as possible, but also for it to be most up to date. And it's so dangerous, you know, to not get it <laughs> accurate because, you know, if you're in front of millions of people and you say one thing and then, oh, no, no, that's not what we meant. It, a lot of tweets that go out after that about <laughs> about things. And so um, so it, it's a pretty uh, 
um, you know, pretty complex. It is when it comes to calling it, well, I guess we'll get into the graphics, but but the um, it seems like everyone's probably a little bit more gun shy now you know, about about what to say, uh, where that gra- where those graphics are. But that's really something in, in editorial. Um, do you? What are the biggest challenges? Any from any of you? What are the biggest challenges in getting these graphics to work? And then we're going to go to questions. Honestly, I think the data wise, <laughs> getting the data, getting the data to cooperate with the engine and, and knowing that like every single situation is tested out. Like for example, the stack master software has information on races across the country, including governor's races. But mm-hmm. the graphic that we want to use it for is a graphic on the, the Senate steps. Uh, and we, of course, editorially in that situation would never want to show a governor's race because that doesn't make any sense. Why would you show it has nothing to do with the Capitol building of the United States of America as to the individual mm-hmm. state that they're running, but like, that's something that they did through their weeks was worth testing. And we were lucky enough to basically the majority of our project was done about a month out and they were rehearsing every single day and throwing stuff at it. So you come up with these like really weird edge cases where like, okay, well, if you did want to show this, like, would it show up correctly? And like, you know, a week before the show, we realized, oh, geez, if you put a governor in, it might still say house next to them because like we didn't expect that being a situation that they do so that's the real thing that like you really don't want to end up in because it's like even though if it's an edge case that wouldn't make any sense if someone makes a mistake you kind of need to cover your your butt so to, right. so to speak oh absolutely well and you, you know like chris was saying you're only as good as your data um and and all these networks have their own like editorial desk but like the major election data provider, I think, had a lot of issues the first several hours of election day. So, you know, there were a lot of networks kind of scrambling. You know, so, yeah, yeah, there's there's a lot of ways to, to for it to go wrong, for sure. And what software is used primarily to build the 3D scenes that are that are there? We use on the raw side. Yeah, on the raw side, we use Ross has a Unreal Engine product called Voyager. And it's just a Ross's custom version of the Unreal Engine. And Chris and I work for Ross, so that's where we spend most of our life uh, in that. And then I believe uh, Lenny you know, yeah, speak the, to the Viz Solutions. That's It's called Viz Artist. Um, and actually, if anybody's interested, there is a free version. You can go and try it if you wanted to get into making some wild uh, 3D graphics. So. And, and, the, and is the geometry generated that? Is, is it modeled in, in, on, in those apps or is it being supplied? Uh, does it get sent from some other app? Either way, you can model in uh, this artist or you can get it from, um, you know, your Maya's, your, uh, you know, whatever. Is that the same on on the Ross side? It's a mixture. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's definitely like the un- our Unreal tools are more uh, rudimentary, like text-based and that sort of thing. And you can do some simple design, but all the more complex stuff, we were spending most of our time in Cinema 4D and Maya. Because um, a lot of the things we ended up realizing is just when you're dealing with a set this big, it's trying to make it performant. And uh, like, you know, when you're dealing with real-time rendering systems, aliasing is one of our biggest enemies. And there's a... There's I was going to ask you about that. <laughs> yeah. And so like, you, you have to figure out a way like, oh, geez, well, you know, Capital looks great when you're, you know, right at the steps. But then when we fly all the way, all the way out to the reflecting pond out in front of it, and we were looking at the pole closing clock, then you're suddenly seeing a bunch of aliasing based on the geometry around the capital rotunda. So then, you know, what do we do about that? So a lot of times we ended up going is, is dumbing down the geometry in external, uh, you know, software and then taking 
uh, that mesh and basically baking it to a texture. So a lot of the stuff that looks like a super detailed model is actually just a, something that's pretty simple. And it's just a very nice looking texture because as long as you don't get up too close, it's more performant and also prevents those uh, negative uh, visual effects. Yeah, it seems like the for most of the AR graphics, the thing that I probably that bothers me the most is typically aliasing, mostly because I'm not used to it as a visual effects person. I'm used to like we have 16 by 16, you know, anti-aliasing or eight by eight, you know, uh, anti-aliasing and, and without and for those listening, you know, basically the geometry is either there or it's not, <laughs> you know, like in in when it's rendered, it's a, it, you know, it has to fill a pixel and it and it's basically the geometry is in that pixel or it's not in that pixel, it can't be partially in that pixel. And so what happens is, is you get along curves, along angled edges. This is, by the way, I apologize ahead of time. This is a red pill conversation, which means once I tell you this, you'll never be able to unsee it. And you should just stop listening for a minute while I do this and skip to the next thing. But basically what happens is along angled edges and along curved edges, what you see, if it's flat, it's fine. But if it's if it if it curves or angled, that geometry is going across pixels, and basically it says, "I'm in this pixel. I'm in this pixel. I'm not in that pixel." And so those form little edges, little what we call aliasing, which looks like little stair steps that go down the down the sides and around those curves. In visual effects, with the way we do, the way we fix that is we render it at a higher resolution. We oversample it and then scale it down. And when we scale it down, it kind of mushes all those pixels together because it's 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 basically using either a bicubic or other, um, you know, uh, solution um, to mix those pixels back together. Like the countdown clocks I was building for office hours for a little while, I would render those at 8K and then put them down into either 4K or or 2K, and then that that mush would um, pull you know create those anti-aliased edges the way you want them to be. Um, but that's a very computational, it's not a real-time solution. And that's been the challenge, right? That's the that's the issue with anti-aliasing. It's just that doing it in real time is a thing. And I, I'd like to add to anybody who's going to work in this real-time rendering space, one of the best things that I've learned is to represent your final work to your client in the way that you will actually do it. Because right. a lot of times, uh, especially designers that, you know, are moving into this space will provide clients with, you know, these oversampled proofs that are rendered out of Cinema 4D or whatever, and they look perfect. They look right. absolutely like no, none of that. And then when they finally see real time, they're like, well, what the heck? It looks horrible. And I think like being able to go in and set that expectation up front because it's just like there's no solution out there that can, you know, render a 16K image and, you know, downsample it. Like that's just not something that can happen um, in today's technology. One, maybe one day, but right now yeah. it's not possible. Yep. Mitchell? Great examples. And I'm very impressed with the uh, state of the art. Um, I do notice one thing, and this is, uh, um, this is a we want more kind of attitude. Um, I noticed that the uh, the virtual images, like of the Capitol building, is pretty good, but it's not all the way there. Is there a reason that you would try to make it not too photorealistic so that it doesn't compete with the graphics that are flying over it? Uh, because it seems to me you do have the capability of making it very realistic. Are you going to show something, Bo? I saw you disappear behind the graphics. Yeah, Chris could probably speak to it, but I mean, it, it, it's this exact conversation that we're talking about is trying to make everything performant because it's got to, you know, it's got to render um, 60 frames a second, you know, 30 frames a second uh, in full HD. So it's, you know, 
doing that and and keeping the performance there. Um, no, is it sixty it's, frames it's, or it's is it fifty? Balance. Is it is it fifty nine nine four P or I or thirty P? What what's the frame rate that you actually 15, work at? Fifty nine. Well, th- for this particular client, it was seven twenty P fifty nine nine four. So that actually was a benefit to us because you know rendering at seven twenty P is mm-hmm. easier now than it had been in the past. Um, especially at that higher frame rate, but, um, yeah, I mean, honestly, yeah, you do have to make your, you're walking the fine line is making it look as, as good as possible, but also looking at performance, but also just a lot of subtle things that you'll see here is like, you know, it's a, it's a director's choice. Cause when you're thinking about working with the client, um, sometimes it's not about what it would look like in real life, but it's what they want it to look like, which sometimes doesn't exactly line up with how something would look like in real life. Um, so, I mean, for example, looking here, um, those, those beams of uh, gobo lights that are around the, the next post close graphic, I mean, that's not actually how it would look. Like, there's not a layer of fog that doesn't, you know, obscure the Capitol building, but allows right. you to see the volumetric light. That just wouldn't happen, but they wanted it to look that way. So, you know, you're making some of these creative choices that are telling their story and meeting their style guidelines, but also might slightly take you away from what would be considered completely photo real. The virtual, uh, the virtual backgrounds looks perfect right there with the graphic. And when you went, went all the way in and did the fly around, it got like, eh, not quite there because it was being spotlighted as opposed to the graphics with the graphics. It looks perfectly appropriate. So I was just saying, can you push that envelope just a little bit more if you wanted to? I think we'll, I think we'll continue. It's, it's evolved a lot in the last couple of years. I mean, I think that that's the one thing that's really interesting is that we see it, uh, with, with processing power and everything else. We see it just jumping in leaps and bounds at the moment. Um, as far as, you know, just being able to do it. And I think that one of the things a lot of us are tracking also is the, some of the NVIDIA tools that are going, that have, you know, smart anti-aliasing that's using AI to do the anti-aliasing as opposed to, um, actually doing the oversampling. And Lenny, you're, you, um, you said you're working 59 and four as well. Uh, yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, the NBC was 1080p. The uh, N5994. The uh, I mean, um, the CVS stuff. I I believe was 1080 as well. Um, nobody's making the 4K jump yet, though. Even though a lot of this can be, you just got to throw a little bit more. Are we still again, processing power at it? Are we still ending up in interlace for a big chunk of the distribution? Well, yeah. Once it actually hits the transmitter, it usually is. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Sorry, it's just like it's just like when I'm asked to do it, I'm like, oh, and then how are we going to handle the interlace? I'm like, oh, when are we going to end? So anyway, uh, but that works better in 5994 as well because you throw away half the half the yeah. field, you know, for, for to make that actually work. Um, let's go. Let's go ahead and jump into the questions. All right, our first question in from Aaron Husledge in Durham, North Carolina. Aaron asked, "I'd love to hear what the panelists think of the PBS NewsHour graphics." They're some of the clearest and most concise in the business, in my opinion. And there's a link to it there. Uh, I'll, I'll just say I did look at them uh, in the 10 minutes I was getting set up before we started here. And uh, they are, um, you know, they are have to be more budget conscious than some of these other networks do. So they have to make uh, decisions that keep things simpler, that they will render easily like that. Like that image there is that's just video playback on a, a screen of some sort. So they don't do a lot of the more um uh, dynamic effects that you see on things but while while that is the information is being presented clearly um it's it's effective i i see uh you know the data they want to see and the way they're presenting it looks good 
I think that's always the challenge is is form over function, you know, and and uh, and figuring out where where to. And I don't think ever anybody ever hits it just quite right. It's always a little too much of one or the other. Uh, next question. Next question in from Jeff Cohen in Miami Beach. Thoughts on the production value from the Associated Press? Another example. I think it's hard for us to see them uh, in real time or, or playing back. That's something we have to work on in our system <laughs> is to, to be able to uh, light these up faster uh, when we when they come in in real time. So we'll uh, we'll keep going. Uh, next question. All right, we'll go to another question then from Jeff in Miami. Um, I have my popcorn ready to watch the reviews while the focus is the graphics. If you notice any audio issues, I'd love to hear what there are and how they should have avoided them. You know, I think that the, the biggest challenge with audio issues is labs and hard sets. <laughs> like, like if you actually close your eyes and listen to almost anything on broadcast, you'll realize how bad the audio is. And probably why they can't notice that the fact that when people come in from their, from their computer mics. Anyway, uh, that, well, that gets I, kind of blended I, I do have one, one thing yeah. that I saw that drives me insane. And the, the, the problem's been solved because they can do broadcasts from racetracks where cars are zooming by. But why, when they do the cutaway to the, the guy in the room where the crowd's going bananas, can he not hear them from the studio? And can his mic's always just really full of room noise. And, you know, like I said, this problem has been solved. Why, why, why are these guys deploying these solutions that are just kind of um, half-assed? You know? uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I think that, I think that the issue is, is that, is that the, um, uh, a lot of times they don't want it to look. So we in the event industry are always like, well, we can just use a WL, a WL-185 and put it on them. But then that looks really big, you know, on them. And they don't want to do that. And they don't want to wear a headset because they're not used to that for, for those types of things. And so they end up with these regular labs and those regular labs are often omnidirectional, not, not, uh, um, you know, uh, not a cardioid. And so we end up hearing the audience. And a lot of times the producer wants to hear that audience, you know, they want to hear that there. And then I don't know what it's like for your experience, but my experience when dealing with broadcast, the, the, I, I don't know what it is, but it, everyone wants to use POTS lines and they want to use all kinds of stuff. And the audio going into the IFB is a disaster. Like our unity comms are way better <laughs> than anything that we get. And they just, it gets crunched down and it gets tiny and it's noisy and it goes into their ear and they can't understand it. And you're absolutely right. That technology is so there. And, um, but the big broadcast trucks are still using, they'll run someone through a little, little pipe all the way there and then stick it into their ear and then they can't figure out why they can't hear them. You know, it's, it's, it, there's these weird gaps in broadcast that I always find kind of amazing, but it's just, it's what it works on a day to day basis. Uh, next question. Next question in from Brandon Buttram in Indianapolis, Indiana. Do you have any ever get, or do you ever get feedback and complaints that the motion is too fast, too slow and causes physical, unwanted physical effects like dizziness or upset stomachs? If so, how do you handle that? You guys ever, ever good? I could definitely speak to that specifically because that was something that we wanted to, um, you know, when we're moving from these different parts of the this like set that has a, a real size. And I think people, you know, whether or not you've ever been to the U.S. Capitol building, it has a sense of scale that I think most viewers can understand. And so moving between these, uh, you know, physical locations that are pretty far apart, you want to do it in a way that doesn't leave the talent um, having to fill time and they can just get to it, but which why we ended up with incredibly quick transitions. Um, and that in some ways is 
a little disorienting, but then it's also like, if you take your time, it's like, well, this is not an art project. You're trying to tell people's story that's specifically going with the talents talking about. So that's kind of what they were balancing. And I, I have no clue if we were able to at all reach that level of success of being not, you know, disorienting, but we did try to limit in general, a lot of uh, Dutch angles from our moves. I mean, a lot of times that can make it feel more kinetic and more of that drone flight style. And we do it sometimes in a couple of these moves, but we've noticed that that's a big thing that like will set off your, your uh, stomach a little bit. Yeah, go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I think Chris hit it on the head when he mentioned scale. I think what's interesting about what you guys are doing is most people are going to watch it on their TV at home and guess there's different size TVs. Uh, I run into this problem a lot about animation speeds on some of the big screens I did. I just got back from Denver where I did a uh, screen we were I was editing for was 180 feet wide by 20 feet tall. And, um, you know, you have a, a little subtle thing in the background and, you know, it because I'm, I'm working on a 27-inch display here at home and then you get there and you're like, oh, wow, yeah, that really has to be... Uh, uh, scaled back. Also, I'll say that it's very interesting. I've noticed in the last couple of years, my both my wife and especially my sister-in-law have enormous aversions to any rotational stuff, um, like a top-down, you know, artistic. Like even if it's designed to make you feel uneasy, they literally just cover their eyes and won't watch it. But like a rotational thing or the classic. Um, uh, you know, like uh, j- just a hard pan that goes around over 180 degrees, they literally turn away from the screen. It, it's very interesting how some people are so uh, adverse to certain types of movement. Yeah, go, Bo. Yeah, it, like like Chris was saying, like this move right here, you know, it it's unfortunate that in production it, it ends up being so fast just to get to the actual data. Um because we saw some offline, you know, clips of the steady cam just or the jib just exploring the space for fun, you know, and and seeing just seeing that set extension and seeing it track and seeing the edges, like it really, you know, you can't really see it, but there's, you know, like the the fence railing extends out into the studio, like it really does feel like you're there. I mean, it's it's such a cool effect that in in you know the live production you don't really get the same feel so it is yeah. it is unfortunate you end up having to make those compromises and make it faster than you know the designers would like yeah and, and uh i think it'll get worse as we move to i mean there are a lot of people almost every device that we're buying now is 120 frames a second like we're almost there <laughs> you know and so uh and then i will tell you that on a large screen uh 80 85 or bigger um, if it fills from the work that I've done, if the frame fills your your point your field of view and it's 120 frames per second and it moves much at all, a it's not a handful of people that don't like it. A lot of people get sick real fast. Like it, because it, your brain is no longer processing it as frames, it's processing it as a window. And it just you suddenly suck in because it's, you know, you you you're it pulls you in. And I'm I'm almost impervious to that and I can't do that. Like and it's so it's going to be, as we increase frame rate, it'll be, it'll be interesting. Yeah, Chris, real quick, and then we'll go to the next question. Uh, I'll pass. It's a longer question. Yep. Next question. Rob Collins, Kansas City, Missouri, asked, 
How do the graphics that use live data in them get or use the data to show? How does the information process from receiving the number to displaying the info on screen? You can speak to that a little bit. Yeah, go ahead, Chris. Uh, um, one of the uh, ways that we take advantage of real-time data is a plugin for Voyager called DataLink. And that's something that's across all of our Ross products, but it's basically uh, intermediary software that allows you to take a lot of different flavors of data, whether that's reading Excel sheets, JSON files, XML files. I mean, you can take scoreboard data, it's out of arena. You can do a lot of different things, but what we were able to work with uh, Fox specifically, and they have a proprietary software that is able to parse the data they're getting from the AP. So first, the AP is providing data, which most likely is on an online database that's you know authenticated and they're able to access it. And then from there, their uh, software is able to um, parse that and put it into its individual like component races and an overall and what um, format is that in? What, what's the format of the data itself? So what we end up, I'm not sure what it is before it gets to us, but they give it to us in a JSON file that's written onto a network area storage um, that we're able to access through DataLink. And so there's one central DataLink server that's running that all of our uh, machines are able to talk to. And so it's set up to basically query the server for new data every, well, it does, you can set a bunch of different you know, timeframes, basically you're trying to balance like it being most up to date with also not taxing it too much. So we tend to ask uh, on this was every 500 milliseconds, it was asking again. And then from there, it was up to the project itself to then interpret that data. So one of the things was that like, there's basically a JSON file that has a structure that has, you know, who am I showing? Uh, like, what's the candidate's name on the left side? What's the candidate's name on the right side? Like what's the count and everything like that. And if certain fields that we chose that were important fields, that if they didn't change, basically the graphic wouldn't change. So if like, as long as the name didn't change, um, it wouldn't like flip to the next candidate or something like that. But um, as vote counts, percentages were changing, that was allowed to update live. And so uh, what's really cool with DataLink is you can have it set up to basically on command update or update when you want it to. Uh, or not when it wanted to, but when the data changes, when it senses a data change. So a lot of that was automated for us um, just with our tool. But then you kind of had to make decisions on the blueprint side within Unreal. And you're supposed showing right now. So every time you saw a flip between one candidate and the next, that was based on they would someone upstream of the operator, the graphics operator, would make a decision saying, okay, we're going to the next race. And so that JSON file would update and our system would be like, okay, now we're going to go ahead and do the flip, pull that file. And one uh, of the things that we're most proud of here is that we're not actually using an external like CG solution um, to be doing any of this like text. Uh, this is all being done directly in Voyager, directly in the Unreal Engine. Um, so that's pretty cool that we've been able to get it to function almost almost as seamless as uh you know what you're used to with traditional cg tools and uh lenny is that pretty much is that similar for how uh bizarre yeah. handles it yeah the the data just comes in from the same source i mean it's all ap data and then uh it's, it's stored in a central location with a data link manager mm -hmm. uh you know it, it's yeah it's the same same process yeah. all right next question 
Brandon Buttram is back from Indianapolis, Indiana. What tools do you use to take measurements of these studios? Any, does, does anyone know what you're are you using LiDAR or are you using like how I'll, is that handled? I'll say um, they don't usually measure the studios. They build the elements um, and place them after the uh, camera tracking systems put in place. And that kind of does all the measuring. Um, and then they'll, they'll set the element, do some camera moves and, and check it, make sure that it's attached to the floor where it's supposed to be or attached to the ceiling, the, the graphics attached where it's supposed to be. And uh, it, it'll just go from there. Like I've, I've, I mean, the, the many times we've done it, we've never done any physical measurements with a tape or a laser or anything like that. You go to Mitchell real quick. Is it perhaps you shoot uh, some reflection maps to help with your 3D? Not really. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's pretty pretty straightforward. I mean, you you, you 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 set the engine up. You set the the camera tracking system, the stipe system in 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 many of, many of the installations that we've done, mm -hmm. and uh, it uh, it it says, okay, here's where all these surfaces are. You know, it knows where the floor is. It knows where the walls are, right. and it it creates a geometry inside of its its system, and then you attach your graphics where you want them to be inside of the uh, overall model, if you will, and then you you uh, control your animations from there. Go ahead, Bo. Yeah, I mean, we've done it both ways. Uh, sometimes you just kind of wing it and get it to fit and and make it look right, and and as long as the tracking locks in, you're you're good. Um, on longer deployments, we've taken, uh, like we've done sets before, not for elections, but for other things. We've done sets before where we actually get the the set CAD model from the set designer, and then we'll bring that in, and that'll be to scale, and we're able to do fly throughs and and previses and stuff like that before the set actually gets built. So we've done that. Um, we've done, you know, the LIDAR measurement kind of thing and, and brought it in to get the measurements right. And then we've also done, you know, just, you know, if a, if a studio has, you know, a desk, you measure the desk, you get that right. And then everything else kind of fits into place. Um, and then you had mentioned reflection maps. So yeah, a lot of times we'll take like a 360 degree photo and we'll bring that in as an HDRI. Uh, so you can get some, some reflections on there. There have been a couple of times where we pipe that in as a camera feed. So you get live reflections, which is, uh, kind of, uh, overkill in most cases, but, um, I definitely have some graphics uh, that I wish I had back where we have the daytime reflection loaded for a nighttime shot, things like that. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of little gotchas. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the reasons that I I I, uh, I scan most things, I, I have an inexpensive BLK three sixty, and then a relatively inexpensive BLK three sixty, and then um, I use Pharaohs a lot, and um, and sometimes you know, and uh, sometimes it's ENF. And the 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 main thing was I realized how long it was taking my modeler to do all the measurements, and you know, like to try to figure everything out. And I I realized that uh, it was just cost effective to just get a scan you know of it when when it still when it exists before you get there is just scan it because it was especially if you own one it's nothing it's like part of your walkthrough and all that time you spent trying to like measure this to this and this to this and this to this you just put the scanner in there and drop it down like two or three times and you get all the measurements for the next you know six months are all like what was that or you know things you forgot to measure are all still there uh next question Next question is in from me, and my question is, what were the major graphics fails on election night that we never noticed? Go ahead, Lenny. Uh, well, the first rule is you test everything a lot. You check everything a lot. And if it's not going to work, you don't do it or you, you work around it because 
there's many different setups and many I've different seen some ways graphics of recently where they obviously did not do that. <laughs> but that being said, there are little errors that happen. Like for example, um, I can show you this little clip here. Like if you look at the floor here and the way that graphic, it, it will kind of bounce on you. Um, the, that that's either I think a, like reflections. Well, if you look at the actual model on the floor when it plays, the camera starts moving and it jumps. <laughs> that's kind of the extent of some of the errors that we see. Um, when we're doing this, because again, if it's not going to work, they just don't show it, um, or, or they'll do something different or they'll go to the magic board because mm -hmm. that can gobble up a lot of time in these shows, um, mm -hmm. where they're just analyzing all the stuff on, on the maps and the guys doing the touchscreen stuff. Um, that, that's, that's kind of the way these things I, I've seen, um, in, in, in my experience that they just won't do it at all. They'll, they'll, they'll yeah. get away from it as fast as they can. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Bo. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of ways to get hosed, you know, uh, especially when you have so much different data coming in, um, you know, not only the 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 candidate data, like we saw one graphic where the the last names just said candidate versus candidate, you know, and and I think that was <laughs> more most likely an operator getting too click happy and, and you know, uh, some edge cases where the operator does some things that uh, that the designer, or the developer didn't expect them to. Um, you know, then also like, like Lenny was showing the tracking stuff, you know, I mean, that stuff is the tracking data is coming in at, you know, a, a 60, you know, every, at least one frame every or one tracking packet every 16 milliseconds. And if you take a slight network hit or there's any sort of network congestion, some of those packets get tied up, you get tracking hits like that. There's, there's, you know, you'll, you'll notice a good many little things like that. If you, if you start paying attention, but there's, there's a lot of ways for it to, uh, you know, Go, go wonky. The next question. From Dennis Wojtek in New Kensington, Pennsylvania. How difficult is it to get data integrated into the graphics and what sources are used? I think we kind of talked through that as far as how to get, how to get the data um, through there um, in that, in that step-by-step -step process. Um, next question. Brandon, but from, from Indianapolis, Indiana, did you physically mock up any of those studios or are you 100% digital after taking the studio measurements? So you didn't, and, and I guess the studios that are kind of updated for the election night. So some of it's all built out, but uh, did they, did they change much? I mean, in structure, do they are, are they all pretty much the same? I just don't know. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> um, I'm good. I, I know most of our stuff is done digitally ahead of time. There's, there's really, um, let's see, uh, there's no mocking up, no physical mocking up of anything. Right. That's for sure. Next question. Douglas Carmichael asked, could an open source platform like SPX be adopted for use in election graphics? I think that SPX is actually used in some in elections in Europe. So, uh, so it definitely can be. Um, of course, you know these are these are pretty heavy duty uh, lifts, but there, there should be no reason why it couldn't be used. You um, know, in, in a sometimes a little bit more straightforward uh, way. Go ahead, Bo. Yeah, I mean, you know, in a lot of the stuff you see, you could build an Unreal Engine. You know, you might you might need some extra bits and pieces for the data and and you know all the little hooks to control it and and make it performant. But um, you know, there's a lot of ways to get close to this. Yeah. You know, with with kind of off the shelf stuff. Next question. Douglas Carmichael, how are they creating the 3D text in the virtual capital clip? In my limited 3D experience, you have to create the text and then manually extrude it to the desired size. So I can speak to that. Mm -hmm. um, 
we were using uh, the text 3D plugin, which is technically still like a beta plugin for the Unreal Engine, but we use it all the time. Not like it's not a beta, but basically it, you're, you're able to do pretty simple stuff like import a font and, um, you know, apply font size, extrusion, bevel, coloring, um, and that sort of thing. But essentially what it is, is a blueprint actor that um, is creating uh meshes dynamically uh when it has text entered into it so that's like the at the very basic level what's happening there but then from uh, our control blueprints that are basically putting the data in those sections you know we're setting things like uh max width we're setting uh you know how quickly they update um and that's that's kind of being controlled but all yeah everything you're seeing here text wise is uh, not a pre-rendered mesh that's imported. Like the word Missouri is actually like was just generated. Um, yeah. The things that are pre-rendered from here, uh, the photos, um, the backgrounds, but the photo and the backgrounds aren't together. They're actually separate. Um, and then, you know, obviously the texturing and that sort of thing is something that's done before. But yeah, all the, all the text oh. is being generated live. Because a lot of it's just it's just defining it. It's defining what the text is going to look like. I mean, I think that's my that was my first introduction to VizRT was um, in Fox Sports, <laughs> which was, you know, and uh, you know Maya was being used to basically define all the geometry, define the you know the bits and pieces that are there, and then VizRT just simply went and grabbed all of that data and put it in dynamically. You know, and in, in, in that case, it was you know the data for a football game, but but it was. Uh, um, but that, that's how that, that, that kind of came together. Uh, I, I just want to tag on the yeah. end of that. Um, mm -hmm. what, what, when we were looking at this stuff, we got to remember that this is all real-time rendering. This isn't any post-processing of any kind. So these engines are taking this data, taking the models and the, the, the fonts, basically the font uh, 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 geometry, and just putting those things together and, and rendering it as fast as it can. Now, if you've ever uh, seen this stuff when it's actually produced, there's usually a you know a couple seconds of latency that exists, but because it's going out to broadcast, nobody really worries about that because there's no live uh, in studio audience. But uh, um, that that's one of the these things you got to look at when you're putting these things together. Is this has got to get done rapidly, and there's no chance to slow down and render everything. It's it's created at a speed that is insane. It's the, you know, I think live is the definitely the most, uh, and same thing with video, you know, when we talk about people, you know, when you work with film folks and they want it to be a film camera or they want to use a thing and we're like, well, that's, there's some practicality issues <laughs> that are related to uh, that, that are different in live than they are in post. Go ahead, uh, Bo. Yeah, I, I'm just impressed that y'all get away with with several seconds of latency because we get we get hammered for every frame. We're sitting around, usually around 12, 15 frames of latency end to end so you know it's like like you said it's very real time you know you yeah. you have to build these scenes so that they're performant and don't drop frames next question and it's uh for me again uh, at what point do the graphics get in the way of the story in, in a lot of ways that's kind of the challenge isn't it i mean that that is always like you know that's not our job normally <laughs> usually our job is to go as high as anyone asks us to go um but i but i do think that uh um, it's it's hard to keep people watching one channel. I think that's the I think that's where a lot of this graphics come from. Go ahead, Lenny. Uh, well, there's this one network that does a lot of graphics, and as you can see, <laughs> they just have an explosion of information, and uh, it, it is 
it's a personal opinion of mine that that's a little bit much, but I can tell you to make that particular composition, I think there's seven render engines making all of that data run through a multi-play system. Um, so yeah, it, it can get to be too much if you ask me. Yeah, uh, go ahead, Debo. Yeah, I mean, I would just say graphics like this, they're pretty, but it's really hard to, to find the data. The data can be really small. So I think, you know, you need to focus what's on important or what's focus on what's important, whether it's the the data or the graphic. And sometimes graphics, you know, they focus a little more on the design than they do the function. Yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, and again, usually it's a different team. There's one team that's accountable for the content and the other team that's accountable for displaying it in the coolest way possible. Um, but I do, I do think that the... I used to eschew... Um, a lot of the graphics that that we would use and so on and so forth. I wanted to keep it simple. Even here, we keep it to a pretty simple um, approach. And that's partially just to manage resources, but it's also partially to, because it's, we just like it to be, you know, you to focus on the story. But I do think the biggest challenge for a lot of these networks is there's an arms race that happens between all of them that, that if you have something very basic, you know, people are just less likely to stay there, especially when everybody else is producing something that's snazzy. So I think that that is a, a real challenge um, for for a lot of folks there. Uh, next, I think this is the last question of the, of the hour. Go ahead. All right, uh, last question for Jeff Cohen in oh. Miami Beach. No, the, let's, yeah, um, yeah. Go ahead, go ahead. With this one, there's one more. Yeah. Uh, not the broadcasters recognizing mobile users that watch the YouTube Zoom to fill. CBS did Zoom to fill. CBS normal Zoom, and <laughs> CNN did not. I think that that's a yeah. I, I it. It's kind of outside of the graphics. It's kind of a framing, a framing issue. But what to do with the, what people are watching there? Go ahead, Lenny. Uh, just uh, something that VizRT is working on right now is uh, what we call adaptive graphics. So depending on whatever platform you're rendering to, the Viz engine can take the data and the the pre pre-designed uh, containers that you've built basically, and it will say, okay, this is a square frame, for example, and it'll reorient the graphics so that they fit uh, within the framing of that uh, viewing plat uh, viewport basically. Um, so kind of same way that uh, you know CSS renders responsive design for a web page. Um, this is something that that our engineers and are working on, and they've started to release in the latest uh, Viz Engine five. And it, it's pretty neat when you start to see it work because you can see um, the the uh, the engines automatically just saying, okay, this we're rendering for this frame th this frame size, for example, oh, whether it be vertical or horizontal or square. And a lot of times that's just a template, right? I mean, the template for the the one the one by one template for nine by 16. I know when we did it, we we did a show where we had, um, it was in 360, 16 by nine and nine by 16. <laughs> and so, and all of them had to go out at the same time. And for us, it was just, you know, a series of templates and just grab me the data and, and, uh, and throw it in there. Um, let's go to the last question. Last question in from Douglas Carmichael. Bo, how would you compare the Ross control panel builder you were showing to a general AV control solution like Universe Isadora? Go ahead, Bo. No, can't hear you, Bo. Sorry about that. Yeah, very similar. So Ross has their uh, dashboard product that we use for most um, most command and control, and it's it's got all the same hooks. You can you know get data from APIs. You can send any sort of web command to cameras or, or whatever. Um, it's essentially JavaScript with some extra stuff in it. So you know you can build buttons. You can uh, you know you can bring in live data, you can do all kinds of stuff like 
you know, just a quick, uh, this was the Fox panel. This is a panel that I had just thrown together to control Zoom ISO um, to get the user list and send the outputs. This is a com this is a panel that I use for my LG uh, 4K TV to to do, you know, full screen or quad box. So there's there's all kinds of things you can do with Ross dashboard software, whether or not you have Ross equipment. Um, it's free, downloadable, cross-platform thing. So it is an app. It's not a web page situation, but uh, it's it's a lot of fun to play with, and you can control a lot of the stuff in your control room. You can also bring in NDI feeds, so you can literally put bring in like a multi viewer and and make it clickable, so you can create a touch screen. So yeah, there's That's a little awesome. plug for that. There's a lot of a lot of fun stuff you can do with it. Thought of a use completely for that. free. I thought of the use for that, that touch screen. Mm, I got to think about that a little bit. All right. Um, thanks so much. Uh, thank you um, to Lenny, Bo, and, and Chris. It's so great to have you. Um, just really, it's, you know, it, it's just getting the inside inside information on, on how that works. We really appreciate your time. You know, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, really makes a difference. And uh, thanks to our, to our, uh, our, our producers, our producers, who asked all the great questions, kept everything going. Thanks to the rest of the panelists. Um, we can't do this without you. And thanks to the incredible team that gets here every seven days a week and uh, puts together uh, this event from all over the world. All right, let's go ahead and jump into After Hours. Yeah, Lenny, you might not have been here.